A year ago, I was introduced to the church that lives in hostile territory. It's in the Arab world. There are tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands, some estimate millions, living in predominantly Muslim countries who worship God somewhat in secret, who live their lives of integrity under no pretense but if they were to publicize the fact that they have gone from Islam to Christianity, they would be killed. To live in hostile territory is something that was not unfamiliar to the early church. When Nero became emperor, Christians were scattered. They feared for their lives. They knew, like at no other time until that point, that they were living in hostile territory. They were, however, all followers of the one who was crucified by under the Roman rule, the crucified Christ. Jesus, who said, in this world you will have tribulation. But he went on to say, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So while we're Living in hostile territory, we are not to be morbid or downcast or gloomy. Peter wrote his book to such a group. In fact, not only was Peter persecuted, tradition tells us that he was killed himself, martyred by crucifixion. But when it came time to crucify him, he said, I can't be crucified as my Lord was. Crucify me upside down. Even a worse form of crucifixion than our Lord faced. Now, Nero persecuted believers. And Peter wrote to the believers in the scattered world, when Nero cracked down on Christianity, Christians ran for cover. They ran to re more remote territories. And so Peter writes this book to those living, as it says in chapter 1, verse 1, to the believers, the elect of God, strangers in this world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, P Peter's only calling card he called himself Peter, the Apostle of Christ Jesus. That's all he needed. He didn't need the, any other credentials other than the fact that he was called to be an Apostle. He was under one order, and that was the order from the throne of God to serve as an Apostle. And he wrote to these scattered believers. Words in Peter rise to the surface. It is saturated with grief and sorrow. Grief, refinement, trials, chapter 1. Chapter 2, unjust, beatings, wounds. Chapter 3, slander. Chapter 4, insults, pain. Chapter 5, anxiety, enemies, sufferings. Interesting, of all the books in the New Testament, pound for pound, verse for verse, the book in the New Testament that contains more Old Testament references is the book of, of Peter. Peter refers more frequently, directly quoting from Old Testament Scripture, verse for verse, than any other book in the New Testament. He quotes 
Isaiah 53, Psalm 34, Isaiah 8, Leviticus 11, and chapter 15, and chapter 28, Psalm 118, Isaiah 40, Proverbs 3, and Proverbs 11, all in a little pamphlet that only had about five pages to it. First Peter has been called by Dr. Philip Riken a summary of how to live the Christian life. By another, the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith. And it was Merle Tenney who said, it shows Christians how to live out their redemption in a hostile world. In a hostile world, when I was introduced last year to the Arabic church, to the Messianic believers in Israel, and to the Palestinian believers, I learned what it was to live in a hostile territory. They, first of all, live on alert. They're always ready for assault. When you worship in one of their churches, there is an armed guard with a machine gun who sits right in the back. Now imagine if you were ushered to your seat this morning or ushered into the building with someone carrying a machine gun over his shoulder. It would tend to set a mindset. We're living in a hostile territory. That's the way it is for them every Sunday. And they're placed there under a predominantly under a Muslim state for their protection. But it still gives that mindset. Hostile territory. The second thing that characterizes the hostile territory believers is you don't exceed your assignment. You fulfill your assignment, but you don't exceed it. They are very strict on living within their parameters. The third is that when misunderstanding, abuse, or mistreatment comes, they don't regard it as something strange, but it's something that's expected. And you just blow it off and keep going. They're very good at living beyond the persecution. They don't live under a persecution complex. It just goes with the territory. They're living in hostile territory, and they expect it, and they just move on. They know how to cope with mistreatment. Now, those do not really characterize living as Christians in America, at least not yet. But in the Western world, from Canada, United States, Europe, We are living in a day when evangelical, Bible-believing, moral-upholding believers are being marginalized and almost treated like the enemy of the state. We who hold to moral standards will not only increasingly be marginalized, but we will be understanding for the perhaps the first time in our lifetime that you and I are living in hostile territory. It's not that we're to walk around with a martyr complex. Peter doesn't teach a martyr complex. He does teach the fact that we are to live in this world with the grid. This is hostile territory. This is not my home. Now, inside your notes, as you know, we've been studying through the Bible. We only have three books to go after this this morning, we've got Second Peter, Jude, and the Revelation as we come down the home stretch. Now, each week we look at five sections. The Know This Book, and it's an easy outline for First Peter. It's living 
hope and living holy in chapter 1, the riches of Christ and our duties as believers, chapters 2 and 3, and Christian living, chapters 4 and 5. But when you have a mindset that you're living in hostile territory, prayer becomes so much more important because you want to talk to home. When this is not our home, you want to talk to home. And so Peter writes to the believers, chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be sober and alert so that you can pray. Why? Because we're living in hostile territory. Peter is the only book in the Bible that links specifically prayer as a high-level assignment for every husband and wife. It gives in chapter 3 the duties for wives. The first six verses. Verse 7, it turns to husbands. And then underneath, both husbands and wives, it gives the call and responsibility underneath it all. So that, wives and husbands, your prayers will not be hindered. Why? Because we're living in hostile territory. And when you live in hostile territory, you want to make sure you've got a food supply. And so Peter tells these believers, chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes crave spiritual milk so that by it you can grow up into salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And there are so many verses in 1 Peter that are worth memorizing, worth feeding on. And if you're going to live in hostile territory, it is no wonder there are 34 imperative verbs in 1 Peter. Imperative verb, of course, is a directive. Stop. Go. Come. All those are imperative verbs. There are 34 of them in the book of 1 Peter. And it's because when you're living in hostile territory, you need to how to know how to conduct yourself. Most of them deal with one of two enemies. There's the enemy of sin that we have to deal with inside, and there's the enemy of Satan that we have to deal with outside. In the Lord's Prayer, it culminates, lead us not into temptation, that's dealing with sin, but deliver us from the evil one, that's dealing with Satan, those two enemies. Those same two enemies living in hostile territory, are dealt with in 1 Peter. First, he deals with sin. He tells the believers, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Then he says, abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. You see, again, that picture of living in hostile territory. It's not just sin that offends God, but sin that wages war against your soul. The wages of sin is death. It wages war against the soul. And then it says in chapter 4, 
verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves with the same attitude, because He who suffered in the body is done with sin. As a result, He does not live the rest of His earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, sometimes as Christians, we can develop the mindset that we have the sin nature and we've got the Holy Spirit and it's kind of a, 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 a race to the finish of who's going to win. And if we listen to the one voice, we're going to sin. If we listen to the other voice, we're going to please God. But there's these two wars going on within ourselves. That is not exactly the view from Peter's perspective. Peter's perspective is that we have died to sin And now there's a transformation that we no longer live to please the sinful nature, but now we live to do the will of God. That's a picture of the transformation that God does inside everyone. Now, the difference is enormous. Some of us are still tethered in our mindset to our old way of living, to our old sinful nature. The Bible does not describe this tearing going on within a believer. We're to turn away from that and from now on spend the rest of our days tethered to what God's calling us to, to our new nature, to please God. So while living in this hostile territory... We don't have to slug it out between sin and the Holy Spirit. God wants us to be filled with the Spirit so that we live to please God. The other enemy is very similar. Some of us have the mindset that there's this cosmic duel going on between the devil and God, and it's going to be a fight to the finish, but in the end, and on the kind of a buzzer uh, shot, God's going to win at the end. That is such a distortion. The fact of the matter is, and follow this now, it's chapter 5, beginning with verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Why? Because we're living in hostile territory. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. What's a roaring lion? It's a big mouth. It's a loud one. He makes a lot of noise. A roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. You've got what it takes. Resist him. Firm in your faith. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And then this verse. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Now that is not a picture of a cosmic duel that's going to be come down to the wire to see who wins, God or Satan. Folks, Satan is already defeated. There are not two gods ruling this world. There is one God, and He's on the throne. And His Son is seated right next to Him. And the enemy, Satan, has already been defeated. 
Now he's fighting. He's contesting for the ground. But you and I do not need to be devoured. We don't have to fear. We don't have to live in some terrorized state wondering who's going to win in the end. Greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. He's a loudmouth loser who prowls around looking for someone to devour. We have everything we need to resist him. We don't fight from defeat. We fight from Christ's victory. It's already ours. And we can contend with any enemy. Now listen carefully. I think this may be worth writing down. While living in hostile territory, the one sovereign God will never allow any enemy to invade our space except that will end up glorifying himself and building us up. It's true. Let me say that again. There will never be an enemy allowed into our space unless it's intended to glorify God and benefit us. Right there it says, God himself will restore and strengthen and establish us. Now, what enemies have invaded your space? Physical illness? Financial problems? Moral struggles? Spiritual battles? Family issues? No matter what enemy it is, it is only a tool by which God will be glorified and you and I will be benefited. You can bank on that. Isn't that great to know? That's really the bottom line message of First Peter. That all the sufferings are to build us up and to glorify Christ. Any trials. And they all remind us that this world is not our home. That this is a holding pool for us to, to live in for this season. For us to learn to live under Christ, to advance His kingdom. For us to live under Christ in an alien territory. And to go forth in Jesus' name to take the kingdom, to take the gospel, to take the good news of His love. To always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within us because we're living in alien territory. There's a mindset to Peter, to the whole book, that not only caught my fancy this week, but caught Dale Patrick's eye. Dale said to me this week, he said, for the next generation, First Peter's the book. First Peter's got more to say to this generation. So I've invited Dale to share the time, to get it out there, to lay it out for us and unpack it. Dale, thanks. First Peter is an amazing book. When I first thought of it, I thought it was a book written you know, by this Jew to a bunch of Jews. I didn't get the context of what was really going on in the book. And as Fred is so wonderfully unpacked for us here this time, is that this book was not written into this kind of test two moment. This is a street smart book. It's a book that's meant to hit the ground running. And I wanted to dry, draw a few parallels from what was trending back in the time of First Peter to what's trending today. 
And there's a number of parallels that we see in this book that we can say this is happening today. And the first one is this incredible philosophies, religions, you call them. It's, it's this polytheistic worldview that's among us, right? You guys know we're in this, right? We are not in, 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 a, in a one thought world. We're in a world full of thoughts. And First Peter's written to a church that had all these other philosophies around them. And it was here to help them figure out what to do in the midst of that. How to think clearly. How to know God is the only God. Second, they were in a culture filled with this um, self-obsession. All about gratifying their desires. It was, it was a philosophy that you should eat and drink and be married today because there's no afterlife. There's no tomorrow. Tomorrow you're just going to die. Well, the book of First Peter is so great because it elevates us to remember that there's a heaven. And our time on this earth is only this small appetizer, the buffet of eternal life. And it's so important for us to remember that we live for an eternity. And because we do all of these temptations to gratify these temporary desires inside of us, we've got to be aware of and really say no to them. The church trending at this time is incredible. It's going through all the suffering. And specifically to the next generation. Many of us grew up without uh, conflict in our school systems. We, we, didn't, we didn't feel like we could, we didn't feel like there was maybe any conflict about being a Christian and going to school. But these men and women over here all live it every day. And they show up Wednesday night with it all over them. In school systems today, the culture's changed. And they're suffering. If you're a Christian at school, you better know your stuff. Because people are going to start asking you questions about you know, religious people who have disappointed the world and expect you to be able to, to, to answer for God. And it's hostile. And sometimes it gets ugly. It's real suffering. But, but paired with that, as we see in the text and in just in church history, is this incredible unleashing of the gospel in power and authority and might and just straight practical. We're here because the book of First Peter was written to these people scattered and they listened. And so because they listened, we're here. Amen. Right. So it really brings these this last kind of trends that I see in the text. And there are these trends of mission. Uh, The church through suffering was sent out all over the known world and they were sent out on the latest technology. It was called a road. That's right. Technology had advanced so much that the roads were kind of flat. You could walk on them. Little horses and buggies could go on them. It was easy to bring the gospel relationally all over the known world. And so the believers realized it was their opportunity to use the technology to advance the kingdom. And they did that. Is, talk, is technology wildly available to us to advance the relational gospel of Jesus Christ? Of course it is. It's all around us, right? It's everywhere. And I think the last trend that is really just speaking to me and I think is so key for us as a church and the next generation is, man, there are needy people who want the gospel. The one trend that has never changed and won't until Jesus comes back is that Jesus came for real people and the situations they were at the gospel is meant to travel on relational lines and our lives are a story to draw people to jesus and this last year somebody even know as I, I suffered uh, the loss of a child and it was one of the more gut level grinding things i've ever experienced and i got to tell you the grace of god was with me and my family the whole way and yeah it hurt like crazy but it also broke me free of a lot of bad theology. And it allowed me to see God in a brand new light. and allowed me to care about people in a fresh new way. And so although the, the sovereignty of God allowed that, because he could have stopped it. 
But he chose not to for, for a wiser, better mean. And that mean was the extension of his kingdom. And First uh, Peter is a book for us today and all those levels. So I just I pray that you th- that you allow yourself as we come down the wire. But really, everyone come down the wire with this mentality that, man, there's so much good stuff going on right now. That if we, like the, like the people who read Peter's words, would listen in and clue into his wisdom, we'll see the kingdom move in, in powerful ways. Thanks. Every book of the Bible exalts Christ. And different names are key to each book. But as we wrap up the book of First Peter... The name in 1 Peter should not be at all surprising. It's used 26 times. And let me set it in this story. When Peter, who wrote the book, was on the other side of the resurrection, on the other side of the crucifixion, he had been sitting at Jesus' feet for a few months maybe six months. And Jesus said, Who do people say that I am? And different disciples said, Well, you're Elijah. Or John the Baptist raised from the dead. And then Jesus said, But who do you say that I am? And without even answering, uh, raising his hand, Peter says, You are the... Christ, the Son of the living God. And the name that stuck for Peter was Christ. It was Peter's aha moment. Because for him, a pure-blooded Jew, Christ meant Messiah. Christ meant the promised one to save Israel and all of God's people from all nations for all time. You are the Anointed One. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And so 26 times in this short little pamphlet we call the book of 1 Peter, Peter uses the name Christ. Christ. He talks about new birth from Christ, inheritance, salvation from Christ, resurrection, made alive in Christ. That Christ by His precious blood, has redeemed us. In fact, the word precious is one of Peter's favorites. He uses it eight times. There's the precious faith, the precious blood, the precious cornerstone, the precious Christ, the precious Spirit, and second Peter, the precious promises of God. In chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, Peter links suffering with the Christ. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now follow this. 
The name Christ means the anointed one. The spirit anointed one is the Christ. So when we are suffering in Christ's name, it's Christ for whom we're suffering and the spirit of Christ and of glory rests on us. It's like Christ at those moments shares his anointing with us. There's an anointing that comes on us when we suffer under those circumstances. Oh, it's just like what Jesus said when he gave those blessings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And then... Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's an embracing of Christ that we've all done. But there's an embracing of Christ knowing that it will cost us something that perhaps some of us have yet to do. The church living in a hostile world knows there's a price to be paid. And increasingly, you do not want to trust a gospel that does not include a theology of suffering. You don't want to trust anyone preaching a Christ that doesn't include a theology of suffering. Christ was crucified. And Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's going to come. And the beauty of living with this mindset is a misunderstanding here, abuse there, it just, it's expected and you just rolls off. Ducks shed their water. Christians, we just need to not shed it. And as we do, as we walk in the joy of the Lord, the spirit of Christ and the spirit of glory will increasingly rest upon us. The word suffering is used in Peter 14 times. But the words joy and glory are included 26 times. We don't dwell on the fact that we're going to get beat up. We're living in a hostile world. We dwell on the fact that we are the chosen. We may live in a hostile world, but that doesn't mean we are vagabonds or homeless or poor. No, Peter says that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who may not belong here, but a people who belong to God. So that we may declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His light. Once we were no people, but now we're the people of God. 
Turn to the person next to you and say, we are the people of God. No, we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. And people who have received mercy don't think twice about what they are lacking. People who have received mercy live in utter gratitude for what they have received. First Peter is a book for all of us. It's a book as relevant today as it's ever been. We need it. We need the mindset of Peter. And First Peter, Second Peter next week as we put the two together, we're going to be able to lock it in and and have stuff that we can live out for the rest of our days. Let's stand together as we close this time. And I want to open it up, give opportunity for special prayer this morning. We want to meet God. No matter what your need, we want you to bring it. No matter what you're walking through, what trials, what adversity, what difficulties, whether it's physical, financial, family needs, we want to bring those to the Lord. If you need to meet Christ today, you haven't known the Lord, you've known about Him, but today God's inviting you. Would you come? We want to meet the Lord.